have a question for you as we start. Have you ever looked back at your life and thought about the different ways that you've seen God show up in your life? Specific times that you can see only as you're looking back. Well, I have. My husband and I have been in ministry for 15 years. And honestly, I still can't really figure out how I ended up as a missionary because that was never my plan for my life. But when I look back on my life and the ways that God has shown up, it is clearly God's plan for my life. So I was thinking about this this week. I remember God showing up when I was a little girl in church. My mom sitting here in the front row tells this story that a visiting missionary came and preached on a Sunday morning. And at the end of her talk, she said, who will go to the world with me or something like that? And I said, I will. God showed up when I was a little girl. Uh, Again, when I was just out of high school, when I was in high school, no one would have thought that I was going to be a missionary, right? Mom and dad, including me, there was no one who would have made that mistake about my life. And when I was just out of high school, not walking with God, doing my own thing, I, God showed up again when I got my heart broken. And I remember I was in Seattle, this boy had broken up with me. I was sitting in the airport crying. Everyone could see me. I didn't care. And a big burly man made his way over to me and he handed me one of those little Gideon Bibles. It was camouflage. I wish I still had it. And he handed it to me and he said, I don't know what has happened to you, but I just want you to know that God loves you. God showed up in my life that day in the airport. Then, when I was 25 years old, God showed up again. I had decided I was going to surrender my life back to God. I was going to start walking with him, really, for the first time. And about a month after I have this come-to-Jesus moment, I meet Darren, who's now my husband. And he was already in ministry with crew. So that's how God drew me into ministry. And now, so I can see how looking back at my story, my story is just a a little piece of God's big redemptive story. And he's using my little story in his big story. And he shows up in our lives, doesn't he? Now, the Bible, of course, is like this too. I mean, on the one hand, these are just people. Bible characters are just people like you and me. They're just living their lives And then God shows up. And if they're open to trusting him and walking with him, then he makes something beautiful out of their story, and he makes it a part of his great, big, grand, redemptive story. So throughout the Bible, God gives us clues that Jesus is the hero of his story and of our story. All over the Old Testament, Jesus is hidden in plain sight. We can only see that looking back now. We see Bible characters doing Jesus-type things, and we read stories that sound a lot like the gospel. And I'm going to reference this book a lot tonight. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. Some of you may have it. If not, this is such a great book to have for children and for adults. 
a great Christmas gift to give. And what I love about it is the tagline here on the cover is every story whispers his name. So this book just really highlights where we can see God throughout all of scripture. All the pictures you're going to see in the slideshow are from that book. Now, the reason the Bible points to Jesus so much is because Jesus is God's plan of redemption for humanity. Jesus is God's plan of redemption for humanity. The main story we're going to look at today is the story of Isaac, and we're going to see Jesus all over that story. But first, let's look at a few times when Jesus showed up in Abraham's story. Did you notice that God was showing up over and over again to Abraham? In Genesis 12, 7, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham. Genesis 15, 1, The Lord came to Abram in a vision. Genesis 17, 1, The Lord appeared to Abram. And then, from our lesson this week, Genesis 18, 1 says, The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So were you immediately a little bit confused? Is this the Lord, or is this three men? The answer is yes, it is. This is God in human form. This is God with skin on. We know these are real people in real bodies because Abram fed them, right? And they ate, just like Jesus after his resurrection. He ate food. He had a body. This is what these men are doing too. So most theologians agree that this was actually Jesus showing up. Many theologians refer to this as a Christophany, which just means Jesus showing up before Jesus was actually born, or pre-incarnate Christ is another term you might hear. Jesus shows up in Abraham's story. We don't know exactly when Jesus realized who this was, but at some point he figures it out. So later in this same chapter, Jesus shows up two more times. First, when Abraham acts like Jesus, when he draws near to God and intercedes for Sodom, he's acting like Jesus Jesus is our great intercessor, and that just means that he intervenes between God's wrath and us. And that's just how Abraham intervenes between God's wrath and any righteous people in Sodom. Abraham is a type of Jesus in this story. Now, three men appeared to Abraham that day. At least one of them is Jesus. But did you notice that they started to kind of act like the Trinity? One of the men stays with Abraham, right? While the other two go down to rescue righteous people from Sodom, Lot and his family. So this seems like God in heaven and the Holy Spirit and the Son going down to rescue people from God's wrath. And some theologians actually think this is the Trinity. In fact, Augustine, probably one of the most influential um, theologians, in, at least in Western Christianity, writing in the fourth century, he argued this is the Trinity in human form. But most theologians think these two men, two of them were angels, but they were acting like Jesus, going down to save Lot, right? 
In any case, we are meant, looking back at this story, we are meant to think of Jesus over and over again in these scenes. Jesus showed up in and through Abraham's life. So on a practical level, why does God keep appearing to Abraham? Well, remember, this is the foundation of Judaism and eventually Christianity. God had chosen Abram and called him out of the only city he knew into a hostile land full of hostile people. So I think God knew he needed to remind Abraham over and over again, I'm here, I'm with you, I've chosen you, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, I called you, follow me. Now we're going to spend the bulk of our time today, like I said, looking at Isaac's story because his story lines up with Jesus' story so well. And there's three main ways that we're going to see these stories lining up. They're both promised, born, and sacrificed sons. So that's our outline today. Promise, birth, and sacrifice. So we'll start with the promise. Isaac is actually promised to Abraham three different times. In Genesis 15:4, we see, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then in Genesis 17:16, God says, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. And then this week in our passage, when Jesus visits Abraham, he tells him in Genesis 18.10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So I don't know if any of you did the math and tried to figure out how long Abraham and Sarah actually had to wait for this son from the first promise until he was born. It was actually 25 years. That's a long time to wait for a promise. And remember, they had probably wanted a son their whole life. And so, but Sarah was barren. She'd never been able to have children. The second promise was 15 years after the first. And the third promise was nine years after that. And then a year after that, they finally, their their son was finally born. It kind of explains why they were doing such silly things and taking matters into their own hands, right? They're just humans. And they, I wonder if they just, it was hard to believe that God was really going to do what he said. I bet it was really hard to trust God. Well, you know who else was a promised son? Jesus. Remember, we saw in Genesis 3.15, God told the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from the very beginning, God promised one day a man's going to come and crush the snake. That promised man is Jesus. Then this week in our lesson in Genesis 18, 16, God said, I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Well, the final king to come from Abraham would be Jesus. Jesus is a promised son, just like Isaac. Now, Isaiah, he's a prophet you might have heard of. His name actually means God to the rescue. He was a man who prophesied about Jesus 
many times, including a famous verse we hear at Christmas, Isaiah 9-6, which promises, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this is, yet again, another time Jesus is promised. So we learned how long Abraham and Sarah waited for their promised son. Do you know how long Israel waited for their promised Messiah? Hundreds of years. But if you go all the way back to Adam and Eve, we don't even know. We don't have a date for Adam and Eve, but thousands of years at least. Now, why does God do this? This was my favorite question in our lesson this week. Why does God make promises and then make us wait? What's he doing? Well, I think one of the reasons is that God's promises help us grow. God's promises actually help us grow. It's actually waiting for the promise to be answered that helps us grow, right? God is building relationship with us, and he knows that faith and trust aren't second nature to us. And so he makes promises, and then he lets us wait for him to fulfill the promises. And it's hard to wait, isn't it? A friend of mine this morning, she said, he's, I call him my 11th hour God. He just shows up at the 11th hour. Another friend said, he, yeah, he's never early, but he's never late. He's always right on time, isn't he? But he's not as fast as we want him to be, almost ever. But God wants us to know that he's in control. And his timing is perfect. We think we know when things should happen, but he actually can see the beginning of the story and the end of the story and knows just when things should happen and when the promises need to come true. So I thought we could review the promises that we have in Christ. Marianne introduced these to us last week. And here's what they are. Acceptance, inheritance, deliverance, grace, hope, joy, nearness to God, peace, righteousness, salvation. Sometimes we feel acutely how much we're waiting for these promises. Recently, I went through some really hard, dry years at work. A lot of difficulties happened that I won't go into right now, but I just got to this point where I had zero joy at work. Have you ever hated your job? It's terrible. And when you're in Christian ministry and you hate your job, you just feel really guilty for not liking your job. Our division reorganized, and so all of a sudden, we didn't have roles anymore. And I wondered, maybe this is it for me. Maybe God's going to call me out of ministry. Maybe I'm done. Is there even a place for me? I asked God, is, there still, is this still your call in my life? And I told him, I don't understand and I don't like this, but I trust you because I look back at my life and I see all the times you've shown up and how you've led me. I, I choose to trust you. And for a while I had to wait and just trust that God could restore joy in my work life, and it was really hard. Well, a few months later, 
I started some creative projects for crew that got approved and so I kept doing them and kept doing them and it was fun and exciting and then I got recruited onto a team that came up out of nowhere that hadn't even existed before in the old structure and recently I realized oh my gosh I love my job again I have fullness of joy at work now this was two years after I had had zero joy at work. I had hated work because only God can do that. God can take zero joy and he can make it abundant joy. And he can do that in any area of our life. He makes promises so we have to wait and grow. So what about you? What are you waiting on God for? Maybe you are waiting on peace in one or more of your relationships, and that's really hard. Relational strife is really hard to wait through. Maybe you need hope for your future. It just seems hopeless for some reason, and you're waiting on God to restore hope to your life. Or deliverance from a trial that you're walking through with a family member or a friend or children or parents or your health or your job. And then there's the big world things that we're all waiting for, right? Justice, there's shootings every day in the news, another one, and we're saying, oh Lord, when is this going to end? There's fires all over the West Coast. People's homes are getting wiped out. When is God going to deliver us? from these types of things. I think even when we don't feel like we trust God, we can choose to tell him, I'm choosing to trust you, God, as I wait. Okay, so we've looked at how Jesus and Isaac were both promised sons. Let's look at their births. So with Isaac, God had a lot of obstacles to overcome, didn't he, to bring about Isaac's birth Sarah, first of all, was barren. She couldn't have children as far as they knew. And Abraham and Sarah didn't really trust God or believe that he was going to give them a son, I guess, because they took matters into their own hands with Hagar and Ishmael, and that didn't go so well. And then in this week in our lesson, when God appears to them in Genesis 18 and promises a third time that they're going to have a son, Sarah is too old. And so she kind of laughs. I mean, I can, I can empathize with her. She's, God, you've been promising this for so many years, and now I'm well past childbearing age. Now you want me to believe that in a year I'm going to have a son? I'm, I would have laughed too. I know myself. But God tells Abraham, I'm going to be back in a year to make good on this promise. Now, a lot happened in that year. Did you notice? There were many chapters and many things happening. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah get wiped out. Lot and his daughter survive. And then there's this disturbing scene where Lot has sex with his daughters in order to have children. That's, you know, these stories should disturb you for a couple reasons. First of all, it's just, it wasn't God's plan. It's not good and it's not what he ordained to happen but also culturally it was so different for women back then in a very bad way so when you read these stories your reaction is is right on it this is not what god meant 
to have happen, and it's, it wasn't God's plan for women either. So a lot happened in that year. But I think that one thing we do see when Lot's daughters are going to their father to have children is how precious children were to this culture. Children were everything. Carrying on your family name, that was all these people had. That was their legacy. Um, And so the other thing that happened during this year, of course, is Abraham does the same thing with Sarah, doesn't he? He takes her to another place and he pretends that she's his sister and another man takes her for his wife. I don't think that's any better than Lot giving his daughters away in Sodom. I think it's just as horrific. Abraham once again jeopardized the promised son by pretending that Sarah was his sister. But despite all of this, God shows up to keep his promise because that's what God does. Genesis 21.1 tells us, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So God overcame barrenness, lack of faith, old age, and risky behavior, all to keep his promise. And the reason for that is that God's promises are dependent on him, not us. Thank goodness God's promises are dependent on him, not us. I was thinking about this family I know through our elementary school And one time years ago, I chatted with the mom about church and God and spiritual things. And she told me, oh, we're not religious and we're not really interested in church or anything like that. And so I kind of just didn't talk to her about it again after that. Well, recently I saw her at the River West Harvest Party with her family. And I thought, oh my gosh, she's here. But I had this conversation with her way back when. But she's here. She's in a church. I can't believe this. It's amazing. And then I thought, I felt so bad that I hadn't invited her to church again. I thought I should have invited her again. I felt guilty. And but you know, another family invited her. And I just love that it's this picture of God's promises in other people's lives. It's up to him. We're gonna make mistakes. And God will get his promises. Done. He'll get the job done no matter what. So now we'll look at Jesus' birth because God kept his promise in Jesus' life too, didn't he? Uh, just this past week, um, or a couple weeks ago, Pastor Christopher here at River West preached about when um, Luke 1, the Christmas story basically, when an angel appeared to Zechariah who was in the temple praying for a child. And he, the angel appears to him and he says, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. You're going to have a son. And Zechariah says, I'm too old to have a son. Does that sound familiar to our story? But sure enough, his wife Elizabeth gets pregnant. And when she's six months pregnant, her cousin Mary has an angel appear to her who says, Mary, you're going to have a son. And Mary says, 
how can that be? I'm a virgin. But Mary had a son. And Mary's fiancé, Joseph, wants to divorce her when he finds out that she's pregnant. But an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, telling him to marry her. Because Mary wasn't from the line of David. Did you know that? So the whole entire promise of Jesus could only come true if Joseph married Mary. It's incredible, isn't it? God overcame old age, lack of faith, virginity, and frightened fiancés to bring Jesus into the world. Thank goodness that God's promises are dependent on him and not on us. So now we've seen how these sons were both uh, promised and then born. Now let's look at the sacrifice. Now the sacrifice This is a really disturbing story, very hard to read, right? And it's also super confusing. Why would God make this promise for years and years to Abraham and Sarah? Uh, What was all this about? Building a nation and giving you a son and kings and nations and people and just to ask Abraham to sacrifice him. I mean, that doesn't make any sense, right? Why does God do this? Well, the author of Genesis actually tells us right away in Genesis 22.1, one of the reasons God was testing Abraham. Oh, I don't like to read about humans being tested because I don't want God to test me. I thought maybe that's just an Old Testament thing that he did before Jesus. But no, look at James 1.2. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So any trial that we're going through is a test. And a trial is just a hard thing an uncomfortable situation that we walk through. And it's an opportunity to trust God and grow. The Jesus Storybook Bible, it presents Isaac's sacrifice story like this. God knew that his secret rescue plan could only work if Abraham trusted him completely. God had to make sure Abraham would do whatever he asked. Now, you might wonder, culturally, what was Abraham thinking when God asked him to sacrifice his son? I wondered that. Well, did you know that Abraham probably knew about child sacrifice? The horrific practice of child sacrifice has been committed throughout the world for thousands of years. Generally, the sacrifice of a child was intertwined with the worship of a pagan deity, often a fertility god. Worshippers sought to obtain a blessing from their gods or to confirm or complete a vow taken in the name of the god. It's even in the Bible. There's child sacrifice practiced in the name of Molech, a god of the Ammonites. Molech worship was practiced by the Ammonites and Canaanites who were living in the promised land when God called Abraham into it. They revered Molech as a protecting father figure. 
images of Molech were made of bronze and their outstretched arms were heated red hot and living children were then placed into the idol's hands and died there or they were rolled into a fire pit below. Some sources indicate a child might also be passed through the fire prior to the actual sacrifice in order to purify or baptize the child. This is horrible. We can't think of anything worse. So child sacrifice was a thing in the cultures around Abraham, but even though Abraham knew about child sacrifice, we have seen him walk with God for decades now, right? And we have seen that he actually knows God. God has appeared to him over and over again. God has never asked him to sacrifice a child or a human. In fact, do you remember when God, when Abraham is interceding for Sodom and he says to God, but God, I know what you're like. You're merciful. You're not going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. I know who you are. He appeals to God's character in that moment. That's how he knows that he can even draw close to God and appeal to him. So he knew God in his heart and he saw how different his God was from the other gods around him who wanted child sacrifice. So it must have been so disillusioning for him when God asked him this. He must have thought, oh no, he's just like the other gods. Now he wants me to sacrifice my child. But when you walk with God for decades, through good times and bad, you begin to trust him more and more completely, don't you? Even when his plan just seems crazy or your life circumstances seem so wrong or something happens and you just think, no, this can't possibly be your plan, you start to kind of trust God. And Abraham proves his unwavering trust by agreeing to sacrifice his son. Even God shows that this, he realizes what a serious thing he's asking Abraham to do. It's not as apparent in our English translations. In our English translations, God tells Abraham, take your son and sacrifice him. And it feels a little bit cold. But I've been taking an Old Testament Hebrew class at Western Seminary, and a few weeks ago, my professor brought up this very passage and he pointed out that in, in the Hebrew, God says, Kana et bincha. Kana, the na means please, which means please take your son and sacrifice him. My Hebrew professor said, Oh, I wish the ESV had the please in there. He said it changes the whole tone, and it doesn't happen very often in the Bible. God does not take pleasure in this test. He is not just, all right, Abraham, go sacrifice your son. He says, please take your son and sacrifice him. God sees when we're in the midst of a trial. It hurts him. He feels our pain. And I think that's really clear in this passage. 
is not enjoying it when we're tested by trials. Now, where do we see Jesus in this story? Well, everywhere, almost every detail. Like Jesus carried his cross up Calvary, Isaac carried the wood up Mount Moriah to his sacrifice. Mount Moriah is where Jerusalem and the temple would be later. So even the place is very significant foreshadowing Christ's crucifixion. We can see that Isaac was a young man at this point. He carried the wood up. He, we don't read of any struggle. He willingly sacrificed himself. Like Jesus allows his crucifixion, Isaac trusts and loves his father and willingly gets on the altar. There's no other explanation. I imagine Isaac had heard from his father all about their God, all about how long they were barren, and all about God's promises. You're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. He probably heard about Hagar and Ishmael. He probably knew all of it. And then he had likely had his father Abraham telling him over and over again how faithful their God was, how trustworthy, how merciful he was to Lot, saving him out of Sodom. Isaac knew all about God from his father, and he trusted him. But God spares Isaac at the last minute. For Abraham, this was just a test, but not for God and his son. Because the truth is, God does require a human blood sacrifice, but he provides his own son. God does require a human blood sacrifice, but he provides his own son. You know, I think about all the people sacrificing children and other humans over the years, thinking this, this is what was going to please God. If only they could have known that they didn't need to do that. And that God would one day provide the only human sacrifice required, his perfect son. Did you know that some religions still sacrifice humans today? I read that human sacrifice is actually on the rise worldwide. A professor at Western Seminary told me that recently a woman came to him who was slated to be sacrificed locally to Satan. She was willingly going to sacrifice herself on a high holy day. But he was able to tell her about Jesus, the final sacrifice who allows any human to come into relationship with God. And so she didn't get sacrificed to Satan. Instead, she accepted Christ's sacrifice for her. It's beautiful. I think God uses this test to solidify who he is with Abraham. After this, God bans child sacrifice. In fact, there are times when the Israelites start sacrificing their children, and God says, no, there will be no child sacrifice. He sets himself apart from other gods, just like Abraham must have known. Abraham must have known. This, he's not like other gods, and God says, you're right, I'm not. So now we've seen 
Jesus hidden in plain sight in Abraham's story, in Isaac's story, and in our own story of redemption. And remember, it's not just a cool literary trick. It's not just Easter eggs so we can go, oh, there's Jesus hiding in plain sight. It's because Jesus is God's plan of redemption for humanity. And I think the best part about it is that only this is for us. Abraham didn't know he was acting like Jesus. None of the Bible characters knew that their stories were just amazingly foreshadowing Jesus and the gospel. They were just living their lives. But we get this gift now where we get to look back and see a layer in God's story that no, no one back then could have seen or known. And I think that's why I love noticing it and talking about it, because it's for us. Jesus was there all along, and Jesus is God's plan of redemption for humanity. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your marvelous word, which amazes me more and more in its complexity, its layers, the way that you've written it just could only be from you. It could only be your holy book. It's too marvelous. And we're so grateful that you don't require a human sacrifice from us, that you didn't require one from Abraham, that you provided the ram, and that eventually you provided your son, and that his sacrifice was the final one needed. It took away all the sins for everyone. I pray that if there's anyone here who hasn't accepted that sacrifice, that you would draw near to them and that they would just turn to you, God, and accept that free gift of forgiveness of sins and relationship with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.